for that. Let's get our Bibles out open to Ephesians. Somehow I never can get this right. It's chapter 2, not 1, but the page is correct, 1079, chapter 2. We're going to begin chapter 2 this morning. The passage of Scripture that Melanie read during worship is our text for today. And uh, you can already tell there's a theme that God wants us to understand today, that every story, every family has a story, right? Every family has a story. And that story is made up of the individual stories that comprise the people in that family. And then together, that family has a story. I spent some time thinking about my family, thinking about, wonder what is the story of my family? And uh, now I didn't get input from anybody else in my family. I'm just from my own perspective. And here's what I thought. I thought the story of my family is joyful sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Because from my perspective, when I think about my family, what I think about is my wife and my four children, and I think about how much and how often they sacrifice for the kingdom of God and how they do not complain or whine or fuss, and yet they still love and cherish Jesus. Because so many moments in their lives, their dad was serving somewhere in the hospital dealing with something in a meeting something to that effect but it's not a negative thing it's the story I think of our family through my eyes so I don't know what the story of your family is but you should think about that and hopefully uh, honestly and Authentically, you would come to the conclusion that your, the story of your family is something with regards to the supremacy of Christ and the kingdom of God in your lives. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Lord, there are so many unbelievable things about you. There are so many realities in you that are so fantastic and so overwhelming that Lord if we linger too long on them God we 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 get to a place where we we just have to pinch ourselves to to be patient and yet to live in the shadow of what awaits us you are more amazing than we can ever possibly express or imagine. But we just want you to know that what we can comprehend overwhelms us and fills us with joy and gladness that we can be called your sons and daughters. Thank you, Jesus. For it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. So news comes... Ephesians chapter 1, we've been talking about this. We were trapped in a world, if I'm just going to try to catch you up, if you haven't been here, we were 
It was as if we were trapped in a world where there was nothing but mirrors, and so all we could see is the reflection of ourselves and the reflection of other people. And so our entire identity and everything about us is based on uh, the comparison trap of us versus other people or looking in the mirror and seeing the deficiencies of ourselves as opposed to uh, other people or even building us up to some false sense of pride because of what we might erroneously see in that mirror. So the, 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 a world, a self-reflective world is a broken, dysfunctional, unhealthy, false reality. And in the midst of that, God, in, in Ephesians, it's like God comes with this news and says, hey, ho, guess what? Behind the mirror is a window, and he opens the window, and we look out the window, and for the first time, we see the, the true reality of what is, that God shows us, no, that's not real. This is real, and we look out this window of the gospel and see for the very first time what is real. Now, what do we see when we look out the window? What is that out there? That good news is good, but what makes it good? News, good news is, is in context. All news comes in context. And in order for news to be good, we have to have a concept, we've said, of something being bad. So if I run up to you, let me just illustrate very quickly. If I run up to you and I say to you, I just run up to you and I say, hey. And you say, what? And I say, I'm Okay. And you go, all right, glad to hear that. I mean, I guess that's good news, but I thought you were okay already. But if I run up to you and say, hey, I'm okay, at my funeral, poo, we got a whole nother conversation fixing to happen, right? So the same news in different contexts is two completely different things. So with your listening guide, let's begin by thinking about how the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. That's what Paul wants us to see here in the beginning of chapter 2. These verses are going to make us realize how really, really, really good is the really, really good news of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Just the first couple of words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were we, I was, you were, all of us, spiritually dead as we drifted along the stream of the world's ideas and living, as we existed in this false reality. And what we're going to see this morning is that we were obeying an unseen ruler who's operating in those who do not respond to the truth of God. We all follow the impulses and imaginations of our evil nature. We're dead. Sin means to miss the mark. We've all done it. Every single one of us, the Bible says, has missed the mark. Trespasses, transgressions, crossing the line, stepping over clear boundaries. 
doing what we knew in the moment was wrong and doing it anyway. And we were dead. See, although our bodies were alive, we were spiritually dead. Dead. Dead in the only sphere that really matters. See, we were dead in the sense of, in the realm of, the most important area of all of life. That's the area that we were dead. Dead in relationship to the source of life. See, we're alive physically, but dead in relationship to the source of life. So although we're alive, we can't live. Look, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. So we were the walking dead We could do nothing to make ourselves alive. See, we used to go with the flow of the world. We let our sense of identity and worth be determined by it. We we let our careers and livelihood be driven by it. We let our wants and desires be defined by it. We let our understanding of family and marriage and sexuality be formed by it. The world influences everything in a spiritually dead person because all they have to look listen spiritually dead people don't look out the window don't know that they're in a false reality they're blind to that and so if all you've got is a reflection of yourself and others then everything about us is warped and broken Our values are set by a godless way of life, shaped by a godless version of reality. So here's what happens. Imagine we once let the world, a world that doesn't know anything about living, tell us how to live. That's shocking. Paul goes on to say, following the prince of the power of the air, which I know that sounds crazy in a, in a contemporary sort of self-loving uh, uh, culture that thinks that we're the center of everything and that to believe in supernatural evil is somehow archaic and small but according to the bible you're never going to understand life on this planet unless we take this other dimension of reality seriously spiritual powers are everywhere around us according to scripture their presence is real and inescapable see the issue this morning is not whether you believe in evil powers The issue is whether we can learn to identify our actual everyday encounters with them. Because there's two dangers. One is to to see some spiritual evil behind and in everything. You get really kooky when you do that. Because some things are bad because we're dumb. But the other thing is is to act like they're not under anything. That, that, those are both mistakes. 
See, according to the Bible, there are spiritual beings doing evil in the world, and they hold humanity under their power and influence. Now, you just think about this with me for a second. Let me give you a couple things to think about. Do you think that the grip that pornography has today on humanity is simply the work of humans? Do you think the stranglehold of human trafficking is simply the work of humans? Do you think the the gang activity that we see going on is simply the work of humans? Do you think that the, the availability of deadly illegal narcotics on our streets is simply the work of humans? Have you ever stopped to think, of, think about this? How do you explain the fact that the narcotics that are killing people in groves day after day after day become ever increasingly more powerful with every passing month and at the same time cheaper and more available. Does that make sense to you? Does that follow any logical progression of economics? It's the work of Look at the end of verse 2. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See that word disobedience? You can circle that or underline that in your Bible. The literal word that's translated there from the Greek, it means not believing. It's a compound word, the negative of belief. It's not believing. And so this is the goal of the prince of the power of the air, is to get people into unbelief, to not trust God. That's the goal. So the root of disobedience is disbelief. The root of non-obeying is non-believing. The problem's not that people don't obey. The problem's that they don't believe because if they believe, they would obey. You obey what you believe. So remember that when you're, when you're fixated on outward Behavior, the problem is an inward unbelief. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Hmm. You haven't been saved too long to, to not be able to remember that. I haven't. I remember the first 25 years of my life. I remember living in the passions of my flesh. I remember the bondage and the destruction that it created. When the Bible talks about flesh, flesh is, flesh is human nature turned away from the Creator and turned in on itself. The flesh, you, whenever you read the word flesh in the Scripture, you, in, unless it's just talking about flesh and blood, if it's talking about our flesh, always understand that that is our flesh always looks inward. It always is fixated on itself. It's humanity with self at the center. Flesh depicts 
us fixated on the mirror, self-oriented, self-driven, self-empowered, self-grounded. And so what do we do when we're fixated on ourselves? Look at the, the next part of verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what we do. See, that's our flesh. We just, we do what we desire to do. The self turned in on itself is is unable to reason clearly because it exists in a false reality. Because the self has turned away or is oblivious to the source of all truth. So then the mind is unable to see reality as it is. So everything is based on a false reality, which is why so oftentimes we'll be looking at things in our world today and, it's, it's, and you scratch your head and you say to yourself, we've lost our mind. Well, that's why. Because the world is operating in the flesh. And the flesh is in a false reality. See, what, what Paul's driving us towards is, is this issue of he wants us to see how bad the bad news is. He wants us to, to really soak in where we were so that we can glory in where we are. But you have to understand that in this bad news also is this understanding of the justice of God. See, God is a just God, and justice simply means giving us what we deserve. That's what justice is. We deserve it. We carried out the desires of our body and our mind. We lived according to the passions of our flesh. And God is a just God. That's why he, he says in Galatians 5, things like now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the justice of God. See, that's not, that's not the wrath of God coming down to punish mankind. That's the wrath of God that just gives mankind over to its desires. Gives us what we want. Doesn't force himself upon us. That's why at the end of verse 3, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's what wrath is. Like the rest of mankind. You see the clarity there? You see? The giving over of individuals to their desires. So this is the condition of every unbeliever. This is the condition 
of every one of us before Christ. We were doing what felt good, sounded good. And in doing so, we indulged our own sinful lusts. We were dead spiritually. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, we were enemies of God. Although God and what he has done on our behalf was true in those moments, we still acted in rebellion to him. God fully knowing who we are and what we would do, he still acted in accordance with his love, grace, and mercy. And so in this helpless moment, dead spiritually, in bondage, enslaved to our passions and desires, doomed under the weight and the penalty of all that we have brought upon ourselves, wasn't forced upon us. We willfully willfully chose it. That's our condition. But God, verse 4, although that is all true and we were desperate and doomed, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, now, if we stop and think about this for a second, if we took the gospel, the good news of the gospel, and we whittled it down to its simplest form, if we said, what, how could we get the gospel down to the simplest, smallest statement? Maybe the statement might be, but God. The gospel's but God. We could say the, we, the whole Bible could be called but God. Every one of us could, could have a Bible on the cover. It just says the but God book. Because God, God, because he's rich in mercy and because of his great love, could be the title of the whole Bible. But God, now you, you, you think back to, to when, think back to when I was a kid. And if you can't think back to that, too bad. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? You should have sang that little tune and you should have listened to that and learned that because it's important, because it matters. Because that little conjunction, but, is very important. And you can't substitute it for some other conjunction. You see, there's a lot of people who live their life as if the their, their version of the gospel is and God. Maybe some of you have drifted into a season of your life where you begin to embrace an and God gospel. You say things like, well, my life was a mess. All of these circumstances and in my terrible situations. And as a result of my predicament, I 
I realized I couldn't go forward. I couldn't do anything else. And God helped me. And he came into my life. But Paul didn't use the conjunction and. He used but. And the difference is very, very significant. See, simply put, if you're an and God Christian, then you think that God saved you because you tried or in conjunction with your trying. But let me tell you something. Dead people don't try. If you're a but God Christian then you know the truth that God saved you in spite of your deadness and in the midst of your inability to strive in any way, shape, or form. That's what the Bible teaches. See, that God saved us by himself without cooperation from us. Yes, we are free individuals. And we have free will. But God didn't save us through any of our effort or anything that we did. And when he saved us, he saved us from ourselves and from our sin. We were the ones that dug the pit that we found ourselves in. We were the ones that got ourselves into this inescapable, eternal, doomed position. And then God intervened. But God. See, this is the but God. It's the, it's the story of our family. The story of this family is made up of all the little stories within. And every month we celebrate some of those stories and through the lives of people within our fellowship and baptism. I want you to think of it this way. I want you to think of it as we're all born in this World under the influence of powers and principalities uh, caught up in our own desires. In this world of reflections. God comes along. This is what he does. But God shows us there's a window. Three stories Three different ways of relating to the window. Kayla, Victoria, Gabby. But here's what happens in each of those stories. God reveals the window. But not everybody's interested in looking out the window. So as Kayla begins to talk, she, she begins to look out the window. And the way she says it, she began to have this hunger for God. And she started listening to online sermons. And she started, uh, she got a Bible. And what happened is she looked out the window. 
And she started to see that there's something more than what she thought there is. So she started pursuing what that is. But before she ever did anything, God revealed there was a window. Just like God revealed a burning bush to Moses. We don't know if the burning bush to Moses is the only time that's happened. We don't know if it happened before. And other people just looked at that and thought that's weird or that's scary and kept walking. But Moses went over to it. God didn't force him. He just shows us there's a window. Then Gabby begins to look through the window. And she begins to realize that what she thought was really isn't and that there's more. So many but God stories over the last 25 years. But God. It was over. But God. We couldn't find our way. But God. found ourselves at our worst but God stuck in the patterns of sin but God stuck in self-destruction but God under the influence of the world but God under the power of the devil but God but God intervened but God showed up but God came through but God was there when I didn't see him but God made a way for me when there was no other way. It's the summary statement of Scripture, but God. And so that's why Paul, early in this letter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us what God has done. He's not going to tell us what God has done until he tells us who God is. You see, we have to understand who he is. These, are ver- these, these opening chapters of Ephesians are, are character and nature statements of God. This is who God is. This is what makes God tick. This is what he's all about. These are the way that he thinks and understands and wants us to know and feel about him. But God being rich in mercy. See, that's who he is. Justice is getting what we deserve, remember? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And he's rich in mercy, meaning he has an abundance of mercy, meaning he has far more mercy than he would ever need or that you would ever need or any of us would ever need because it's an unlimited amount of mercy. And why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Understand, he loved us in the past tense. Why is that in the past tense? Because he didn't just start loving you when you walked over to the window. He didn't just love you because you walked over to the window. He doesn't just love you because you peered out the window. He already loved you. See, he loves you regardless his will that no man would perish he loves us 
loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you see that? Even when we were spiritually dead, even when we were his enemies, he still loved us. And so what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So if mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. He's rich in mercy. By grace we've been saved. So he makes us alive. Verse 6, he raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, my goodness. It's a good thing I don't have the party blower. I'd be wearing it out right now. Listen, notice, notice these three verbs. It's not will make alive, it's not will raise up, and it's not will seat. Notice the tense. All three verbs in the past tense. God made us alive by raising us up and seated us in the heavenly places. Here's the shocking reality this morning is that what God did for Jesus, he now does for all who believe in and belong to Jesus. Now, this is a mind-blowing reality. This is crazy. But God, when we enter into relationship with Jesus, we somehow begin to share in what is true about Jesus right now. Now, this isn't just my interpretation. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. See, it seems to me, and it should seem to you, the only logical way to approach this in order for us to understand what it means for us to be made alive, raised up, and seated, those three things, is we need to understand what it means for Christ to be made alive, raised up, and seated, right? It's the only way this makes any sense. The simplest way to express this is that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension altered the basic structure of the universe, right? So when that happened, something real, objective, measurable, and revolutionary happened. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Something happened. All the barriers between heaven and earth had been removed. All the walls had come down. This is, this is now full and free access into the heavenly realm. So therefore, those made alive with Christ then have real, objective, measurable, revolutionary differences, right? People made alive with Christ love him and want to love him more. People made alive with Christ love his word and want to understand it more. Those made alive with Christ love who Christ loves and love his bride. Those made alive with Christ love the world for which he died and want their neighbors and their co-workers to find and know and be loved by him. This is what Jesus meant when he announced the kingdom of God 
is now at hand. It's now come clear. It's now near. See, look, and raised us up with him. Not only does he make us alive, but he raises us up. So we've been brought into a qualitatively different life. Made alive, raised up. Think about this. When Jesus was raised from the grave, a new reality emerged in the midst of the old. So here's what happens. When we, when we are raised to life, we're still in this world. We're still in the midst of the old life, but now we're born again. There's a new creation in the midst of the old, right? There's new in the midst of the old. So when this happened to Jesus, this isn't just one man returning to life after dying. But when Jesus emerges from that grave, if you think about this, it was, it was the emergence of a new creation that everything in that moment changed. Easter morning is the first day of a new world. It's new. And so God raised him up. And then the Bible says God raised us up. We receive in being raised up this indestructible life which the grave cannot destroy. That's what John 3.16 says. Eternal life. But listen. Buckle up. Get the party blower out. Not only did he raise us up with him, but he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, where is that? Or what do we know about that? Seated us with him in the heavenly places. Well, just think back. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 1. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him up, raised Jesus up from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. That's what we know about where Jesus is raised up to. Then Paul turns back around. He says, now Christ is above all power and authority and dominion. They used to rule our life. They used to cause us to live according to our own doom and our own desires. But Christ is raised up in this supreme place and yet we have been raised up and seated us with him in the heavenly place that's where it is when you're saved and born again you're seated with christ paul is telling us we're seated with christ and where is paul when he's writing this he's in prison so see i can't fully comprehend all of this but i know enough to know that here's one thing i know for sure this doesn't this doesn't mean that all our problems on earth are solved but it does mean that all of our problems are solved because we're seated past tense in the heavenly realm, above all power and dominion. So what I know is that this means that we're fully alive 
and able to begin to live what we were created to live, which in Genesis chapter 1 prior to sin was us ruling the world with him. So we're seated there. That's a done thing. So our earthly problems aren't all fixed, but all our problems are fixed. See, what is clear is that there's no longer any need for us to fear other powers and dominions. Why? Because we've been seated above them. That's what the Bible just said. Which means that we need not live by the values and the agendas of other powers and dominions because we're seated above them. That's the insanity of of looking out the window, peering out the window and seeing what's out there and then getting lured back into into the mirror. We have to remember Jesus, think about this now, he didn't become a different person when God raised him up and seated him above all rule and authority. He didn't become different. He wasn't a different person. He's still the same Jesus. He's now above all authority and dominion and power, above every name that is named, yet he's still a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He's still a healer of those with sick bodies and troubled minds. He's still the same Jesus, gentle and compassionate. He's still the same Jesus that doesn't avoid the world's pain, but enters into it willfully choosing to be a channel in dead people's lives of all the resources of heaven. So his authority is supreme, his dominion is unmatched, yet he remains a king devoted to servant love. So if that's us, if we are if we're made alive and raised up and seated, what is all of that for? To be part of God's plan of extending the riches of his mercy and grace to the world around us, isn't it? Isn't that our story? It's so good. It's almost unbelievable. But we know it's true. Because we know in our heart. If you're here this morning and you're still living in a world of reflections and you've never looked out the window, then you don't need me to tell you. You already know. Because I know, because I I lived that life for 25 years. I know the emptiness that Gabby talked about. I know the, the dissatisfaction in every direction. If you've drifted away from a but God gospel into an and God gospel, and you've been lured away into self-sufficiency or self-dependence. And although you may be seated, if you belong to him above all 
authority and dominion. You're still allowing authorities and dominions that are subject to you. You're still allowing them to control you. What if we... What if we wrapped our heads around? What if we fully grasped and embraced this concept of being alive and raised up and seated? What God originally intended in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, through the shed blood, his son he accomplishes the redemption of all of that and brings it back to think about how, how our lives were changed alive and raised up and seated please God help us truly live in the reality of alive raised up and seated with Jesus Christ who is alive raised up and seated Please, please help us. But God, thank you, Lord. Thank you for opening the window. In the midst of our depravity and undeservedness, inviting us to peer through and to see what is really real, inviting us into a love relationship with you, inviting us into an adoption into your family, inviting us, although we were dead, although we were helpless, although we had rebelled against you, you, rich in mercy, because of the great love which you had for us. Somehow you loved us in that state. And Lord, when we peered out the window and we began to see the truth. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. Lord, there are many, many trials and struggles in the lives assembled in this room right now, every one of which you're aware of. And God, help us to see that when you seat us in the heavenly places, when you, when you did that in our conversion, Lord, all of our earthly problems are not solved but all of our problems are solved. And but God creates a, a courage in us, creates a fire to live for something more. It makes meek and timid people bold. It makes greedy people generous. causes us to step out of our comfort zone and realize that true joy does come in giving and not receiving. 
It enables us to be able to love those who don't deserve our love or who even cause pain and suffering in our lives. God, help us to truly embrace being made alive, raised up, and seated. Because when this life passes away, the first thing we're going to do is sit at your table with you. Thank you. For you are an amazing God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand and bow our heads. We're going to have a time of reflection and invitation. If you want to come and pray at the altar, I invite you to come. If you don't know Jesus,